You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information While I wasn't born there, I spent most of my youth in the small town of Thompsonville, New York, which is located in the southern portion of the so-called Catskill Mountains. I always like to joke that the town is so small that if you blinked while you drove through it, you'd miss it in its entirety. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but the location of today's story is probably not much different. In fact, I'm quite certain that it is far more remote than where I grew up. Nestled in the northeastern portion of Tennessee is the central Appalachian county of Hancock, which is just a short distance from the southern border of Kentucky. Well, according to the 2010 census, the population of the entire county was 6,819 in total. The median income there today is $19,760, making it the county with the lowest income in Tennessee and the 27th lowest county in all of the United States. On January 14, 1937, in Treadway, which is a small town in Hancock County, A young couple asked a local minister, that's 53-year-old Reverend Walter Lamb, to join the two in matrimony. He quickly looked over the marriage license and everything seemed to be in order. Issued just six days prior, the legal document allowed him to marry 18-year-old Eunice Blanche Winstead to 22-year-old Charlie Jess Johns. And that was exactly what he did. Standing at a curve in the roadway, the Reverend asked the two to join hands and then he performed what he later described as a Baptist ceremony. And what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. He then pronounced the man and wife, and the brief ceremony was over. His fee was $1, which is about $18 today. Soon after, the couple arrived at the home of Nick Johns, who was the father of the groom, and Charlie announced, Well, we're married. Neither family was surprised by their elopement, and the parents from both families offered their approval and blessings to the newlyweds. Mrs. Winstead later stated, 
Eunice had claimed Charlie for hers ever since we live here. Of course, we never had any idea they had a serious thought about each other, and they were married before we knew it. Well, back in 1937, Hancock County was in one of the most inaccessible locations of all of Tennessee. And Treadway itself was a town without telephone or telegraph lines. They didn't have electric lights. They didn't have railway service. This really was an isolated town. As a result, news of their marriage was slow to reach the outside world. But when it finally did 10 days later, the marriage of Eunice and Charlie was thrust upon the front pages of newspapers all across the nation. Why? Because the couple had lied on their marriage application. While Charlie was 22 years old, Eunice was a prepubescent nine-year-old girl. You see, on the morning of their marriage, Eunice told her dad she was headed up the road to her married sister's house, and that was to get a doll that Charlie had given her the previous Christmas. But, as we already know, she met up with her fiancé, and the two walked several miles to ask Reverend Lamb to marry them. After the ceremony was completed, Eunice stopped at her sister's house to pick up the doll and then she went home. When questioned by the press, Eunice's dad, that's Lewis Winstead, he stated, quote, All right with me. There's nothing you can do about it now. Mrs. Winstead commented, quote, Eunice loves Charlie and Charlie loves Eunice and taint nobody's business but theirs. Never in all my born days did I see such a commotion and flusteration about two people getting hitched. Maybe Eunice is a mite young, but what of it? She continued, I guess I was married at 13 and a grandmother at 30, and there ain't nothing wrong with me. I thank God my little girl's got a good husband, and I pray they'll live together and be happy. People shouldn't ought to pester him so. When questioned as to why he had married the couple, Reverend Lamb stated, quote, If I hadn't married them, someone else would. Reflecting back on what had happened, he said, I don't think I would have, though, if I had known the girl was quite so young. Nine's a little early, but they had a license, and Eunice didn't seem so young. What is most shocking is that there was nothing the public officials could do about the marriage. Believe it or not, it was totally legal. Louis Rhea, who was the Hancock County clerk at the time, stated, quote, When I learned she was just a child, I investigated and found out her parents didn't object. So far as I know... The present Tennessee law allows marriage at any age if the parents agree. And he was correct. A Tennessee law enacted in 1927 required that girls under the age of 18 and boys under 21 give five days notice prior to the granting of a marriage license, that is, unless they had their parents' approval. The effect of this law was that many couples and that included those of eligible age who misunderstood the regulation, well, they simply went to another state to marry. This resulted in counties like Hancock losing up to half of their marriage license revenue, so the state legislature repealed that portion of the law in 1935. That's two years before they married. This made Tennessee the only state in the Union at the time to have no minimum age for marriage. This did produce a desired result in the fact that Hancock County was now able to double its revenue from marriages, and that's because many of their couples were coming from the nearby state of Virginia, which had set its minimum age for marriage at 21. Basically, Eunice and Charlie were legally married, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. 
And while both families were in approval of this union, the outside world was not as supportive. Here's just a sampling of what others had to say. Mrs. Urban Neas, president of the Central Parent Teachers Council, stated, quote, I can't imagine such a thing happening in a Christian nation. If there is anything the PTA can do to prevent its recurrence, we certainly hope to do it. And then there's Mrs. Graham Canning, who is the president of the Osley Circle Women's Club. She expressed support for returning to the five-day marriage rule. Quote, If we had such a law now, that marriage could have not have happened. As it is, it's a poor commentary on our civilization and on East Tennessee. The Reverend Walter A. Smith, who has pastored the Trinity Methodist Episcopal Church in Knoxville and the president of the Ministerial Association, he offered up the following comment. I think the preacher who married that couple made a very great mistake. But the people who issued the license for the marriage made just as big a mistake. I don't know what can be done about that marriage now. It's a tragedy. A very great tragedy. It should never be allowed to happen again. If there isn't a law, there should be one. Mrs. Louise Bussard, also of Knoxville, stated, quote, I sincerely believe that some restrictions should be put on the marriage of young girls. Children nine years old certainly do not know their own minds, and they may get married just because the idea sounded glamorous. Another resident, Wallace Wright, stated, quote, The present laws are all right, but there's no use in people making fools of themselves and the laws, too. Even Tennessee Governor Gordon Browning was asked for his opinion, quote, the girl's parents sanction the marriage and that makes it legal. He added, Of course a marriage like that is a shame, but what can I do about it? And besides, I've got more important matters to worry about at the moment. Well, three days after the story first broke in the news, two bills were introduced into the Tennessee State Senate. The first would make marriage involving anyone under the age of 14, quote, null and void, and that's even if the parents approved. The second will make a county court clerk guilty of a misdemeanor if he or she knowingly issued a marriage license to anyone under the age of 16. And should someone under the age of 16 wish to marry, the clerk will require to call for a hearing before a judge. Two days later, without a dissenting vote, the Senate passed a bill preventing any marriage in which either member of the party was under the age of 14. It was now up to the Tennessee House to review, modify, and approve. Upon hearing the news of the Senate approval, Charlie told the press, quote, I ain't paying no mind to what they're doing down to the legislature nor what folks is saying. Ain't no new law gonna change things now. Me and Eunice is married for keeps and I reckon I can look after her without no help from nobody. The public uproar over the marriage continued to swell, which forced the young couple to take refuge in the home of Charlie's parents. As you'll see later, they never left. And with the help of neighbors who blocked the road and stood guard outside, although no guns were involved, everything seemingly possible was done to insulate nine-year-old Eunice from the prying eyes of the curious press. Charlie told reporters, quote, Let Eunice alone. Don't scare her. Her dad chimed in also. This thing has got to stop. The girl will lose her mind if strangers don't stop coming to see her. Yet no one was more vocal in supporting the marriage than Eunice's mom. Let them alone. If they want to live together and be happy, then people should leave them alone. She added, Eunice can't sleep. She's so nervous. She'll lose her mind if this keeps up. 
The Bible says not to disturb those peacefully getting along, and I don't believe in going against the Bible. If they love one another, then getting married is the thing to do. If they want to live together and be happy, then people should leave them alone. Charlie is a good boy. He's a hard worker. He bought 40 acres a few days ago so they could have a home. Of course, understand I haven't brought my children up to marry what man has got, but to marry for love. She married too young, but it's too late to talk about it. After all, every girl has a right to get married, and if Eunice wants to marry Charlie, it's her life. So you may be questioning just how common child marriages were back then. Well, nationwide it was estimated there were 5,000 child brides under the age of 15 back in 1937. If one includes those who were 15, the number skyrockets to 20,000 young girls. About one quarter of those baby brides were concentrated in the states of Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Tennessee. The press ran stories of similar child brides, but none were as young as Eunice. For example, there was 12-year-old Leona Elizabeth Rochia who married 18-year-old Stanley F. Backus in Watertown, New York. And then there was Mrs. Ben Jacobs of Port Byron, Illinois, who gave birth to her first son in 1933. That was nine days before she had turned 12. Or Mrs. Ellen Walker of Panacea, Florida, who gave birth to a son before she had turned 13. Or how about Mrs. Russell Frizzell of Moline, Illinois, who had already had a son by the time she was 14. And on January 29th, that's the day before Eunice and Charlie's marriage was revealed in the press, 13-year-old Eula Green married 17-year-old Charles Newberry of North Carolina. Now, there were many more stories just like these, but I was struck by what Mrs. Jean Darnell, another Tennessee child bride, had to say. Quote, When I'm around the hill people, I brag I was married at 13 and a grandmother at 30. But that's just brag. If I had to do things over again, I'd do them differently. My husband's in the state penitentiary. I have to make a living for myself and my children. I managed to get enough education to do it, but it's hard to have to pay all your life for a mistake at 13. A girl of 12 or 13 or even 14 has no idea of love or marriage. She ought to be protected. And if this case has stirred up enough excitement to bring about a new marriage law for Tennessee, then it has served its purpose. I feel sorry for little Eunice, but it took something like this to wake people up. She doesn't realize it, but she saved other girls from becoming wives and perhaps widows before they are grown up. I think Tennessee owes a vote of thanks to its nine-year-old bride. On February 26, 1937, Governor Browning signed into law a measure that set the minimum age to marry at 16. Should the girl be under 18 years of age, the new law required a three-day waiting period before a license could be issued. And lastly, should either the party be under 16, a court could annul the marriage should a complaint be filed, quote, by such person or any interested person acting on his or her behalf. Yet this did not bring a halt to child marriages in Tennessee, and here are three examples. On March 13th of that year, 14-year-old Dolly Livesey married 23-year-old James Brewer. You know, they simply slipped across the border into Kentucky to get married, which other young couples were doing at the same time. 
A March 23, 1937 Knoxville Journal article stated that, quote, Unlike Mrs. Eunice Johns, whose marriage at nine precipitated the new law, Mrs. Brewer has begun to mature towards womanhood and has been versed in the housekeeping arts. Then there was 13-year-old Mildred and 17-year-old Robert Pack of Knoxville who eloped to Marshall, North Carolina on September 1, 1937, and that's where a justice of the peace performed the ceremony. Robert stated, quote, Well, I guess we put one over on the old folks, and on that new state law too. We sure got around that. Finally, on March 29, 1937, 12-year-old Geneva Hamby married 32-year-old Homer Peel of Madisonville, Tennessee. She gave her age as 18 when she applied for the marriage license. And on April 21st, her mother filed to have the marriage annulled, stating, quote, Homer Peel's too old for her. She is too young to marry anybody. Shockingly, the court refused to annul the marriage. As it turns out that Geneva had been placed in an orphanage two years prior and had had little contact with her mother since. Chancellor A.T. Stewart agreed that there had been a violation of that 16-year age minimum, but he wrote that an annulment would only serve to put, quote, Geneva out of house and home with no place to go. In early August, it was time for Eunice to go back to school. You know, she had stopped attending it after her January marriage. When teacher Wade Ferguson gave her a switching for supposed general mischievousness, her husband decided to withdraw her from school. When he told Ferguson he couldn't whip another man's wife, Ferguson told Charlie, quote, Oh yes, I can whip another man's wife if another man sends his wife to school to me. Well, Tennessee law at the time did require anyone under 16 to attend school, but Education Commissioner W.A. Bass stated, quote, we will not take any action to compel a married child to attend school. Eunice would never return. With less than a third grade education, she would never learn to read. Meanwhile, offers for Eunice and Charlie to appear in both vaudeville and movies poured in. Some were as much as $500, which is about $9,000 today, but they were nearly all turned down. They did appear on stage for the first time on October 30th, 1937, as part of a show in Kingsport, Tennessee. After the couple was introduced by the announcer, they simply stood silently on the stage for two minutes. They made a total of six appearances that day, and there was talk of making the couple the feature attraction of a traveling show, but that never materialized. Rumors began to circulate in the press that the couple's marriage was falling apart. But when their first anniversary came around, they were still together and, of course, living with Charlie's parents. When questioned about their marriage, Charlie commented, quote, Of course we fuss now and then, but it don't amount to nothing. We've managed fine the last year, and we'd be a lot happier if folks would just leave us alone. He added, I've got to where I don't trust many people anymore. Too many of them are out to slick a feller. I've made some money, but it's not in a bank. I've got it hid away. Eunice had little to say, but boastfully stated, quote, I like to milk. It was noted by the reporter that she was learning how to cook, to which Charlie added, quote, She already knows how to make biscuits. A year later, on the eve of their second anniversary, it didn't seem like much had changed. 
Quote, She's pretty good at milking and washing, but she ain't learned much about cooking yet. Charlie said they were planning to build a small house because, quote, we ain't gonna have no young uns. Well, as they say, never say never. On December 18, 1942, 14-year-old Eunice gave birth to the couple's first child, Evelyn. And she wouldn't be their last. As their 20th anniversary rolled around, Evelyn was now the proud mother of seven children. And Charlie had inherited his parents' 150-acre hillside farm, and he'd become a prosperous farmer. After selling off the mineral rights to a zinc company for $75 per acre, the couple was financially set for the remainder of their lives. The couple would once again make headlines in September 1960 after their daughter Evelyn, who is now 17 years old, eloped with her boyfriend, that's 20-year-old John Henry Antrican. The couple had been dating for about a year, but Charlie never approved of the relationship. John Henry described to reporters how he whisked Evelyn out from under her father's guard. Quote, Charlie was working in his tobacco patch when I went and got her. He took out after me but never got close. At that point, he exchanged cars with a friend. He continued, I went every which way I could to throw him off the track. I took Evelyn to Morristown where she spent the night with a Negro woman who used to live close by her. Then I come home and I spend the night here. Well, the next day, that's Friday, he picked Evelyn up and they drove to Rutledge, Tennessee, and that's where they were married. Needless to say, Papa Charlie was furious. On the same exact day of their wedding, he had John Henry arrested and charged with abduction. He was then released on a $1,000 bond, only to be rearrested the next day, along with his mother Eliza, and they were charged with falsifying Evelyn's age at 21 when they obtained the marriage license. Evelyn told the press she couldn't understand how her father could be upset with the marriage. Quote, After all, Papa married Mama when she was only nine years old. John Henry told the press that Charlie did not approve of the marriage because he wanted Evelyn to marry, quote, another boy who was better off financially. He added that Charlie was, quote, just plain hard to get along with. Reverend Lamb, you know, the same minister who had married Eunice and Charlie 23 years prior, well, he offered a step in and try and find an amicable solution to the problem. Quote, if I could see him, I would. He added, they better be proud she married a good boy. Charlie Johns did not take him up on the offer, but luckily he came to his senses and dropped all of the charges. Evelyn and John Henry would remain married until Evelyn's death 46 years later. Which brings us to the conclusion of this unusual story. When the press interviewed Eunice in 1976, she said she had no regrets over marrying so young. When asked about the worst part of doing so, she noted that it had brought an end to her education. Quote, I never could learn too easy and I didn't learn much when my children were in school. Charlie Just Johns died on February 13, 1997 at the age of 84. After all the criticism from the naysayers had long faded away, the couple had a successful marriage that lasted 60 years. 
Together they had nine children, that's three girls and six boys, with a 19-year age gap between the youngest and the oldest. Sadly, their youngest daughter had died from pneumonia at 20 months of age, just one week prior to their 25th anniversary. Eunice Blanche Winsett Johns would live another nine years without her husband. By then a great-grandmother, she passed away on August 29th of 2006, less than a month shy of her 79th birthday. Which leaves me with just one last little surprise. After I finished writing the story, I started to gather the documents and images to post on my website. And then it hit me. Every single story ever written about the couple had made the same error, and I was about to repeat it. So after a little math and some double-checking, actually triple and quadruple checking, Charlie Johns was not 22 when he married Eunice. He was 24. Useless, useful, other than that for you to decide. Incorporated, Bakers of America's most enjoyable candy bars bring you another half hour of fun with your genial master of wit and information, Dr. I.Q., the mental banker. And for your enjoyment always, we invite you to try the new Dr. I.Q. candy bar. Stop at your favorite candy counter tonight or tomorrow and discover for yourself its fine taste blend. From the first exciting bite to the last delicious flavor that lingers in your mouth, we know you will agree that this fine candy is wholesome, nourishing enjoyment. For its blend of rich, pure milk chocolate, crisp, roasted peanuts, snowy white nougat, and smooth, creamy caramel has met with instant approval from the thousands who have tasted its luscious goodness. Treat yourself to this new candy thrill tonight or tomorrow. Remember, for the answer to your taste question... Eat a Dr. I.Q. candy bar. That commercial for the Dr. I.Q. candy bar is from the January 26, 1942 broadcast of the radio quiz show, Dr. I.Q. the Mental Banker. This particular episode was recorded at Shays Buffalo Theater in where else but Buffalo, New York. Now, having gone to college in Buffalo, I can actually say I have been in this spectacular theater. Well, I have to be honest, I have no remembrance of what I saw there. The Dr. IQ Show is the brainchild of Lee Siegel at KTRH in Houston. Metzger Dairies, which was a sponsor of Houston's Vox Pop Show, that was a show in which the announcers would go out into the street and interview people, well, they asked Siegel to come up with a new concept. So he came up with the idea of moving half the show indoors to the city's Metropolitan Theater, and on July 12, 1937, Dr. IQ was born. The idea was very simple. Dr. IQ, who was never identified by name, would rattle off a series of questions of varying difficulty. The unusual part of the show was that the contestants never came up to the stage. Instead, assistants would roam the audience and bring willing contestants to microphones located throughout the theater. Each contestant would be announced by a phrase something like, I have a gentleman in the balcony, doctor, you know, or something similar. A popular catchphrase that came from the show was, I have a lady in the balcony, doctor. 
The Dr. IQ portion of the Vox Pop show became so popular that the show was soon renamed Vox Pop with Dr. IQ, and pretty soon Dr. IQ was spun off into its own standalone show. The show went national on the NBC network and it picked up Mara's Candy as its sponsor. And the show would travel to various cities around the United States, but due to the complexity of moving all that broadcasting equipment, think about this is in the 1930s, it would typically spend about one month in each city. The prizes were real simple, real silver dollars. And of course the total number rewarded were based on the difficulty of the question. If the contestant got the question wrong, they would get a consolation prize, which was typically a box of Mars branded candy, plus tickets to whatever theater was hosting the show at that moment. So let's take a listen to a clip from the show. I have a gentleman, Doctor. Nineteen silver dollars to that gentleman for this one. An engraver is commissioned to engrave a cube of metal. He is to engrave as many of the cube surfaces as possible, but no two engraved surfaces may touch. For his work, he is to be paid $10 for each surface he engraves. Under his instructions, how much will he be paid? Would you repeat that, Dr. Please? <laughs> yes, I'll be happy to repeat that, sir. An engraver is commissioned to engrave a cube of metal. He is to engrave as many of the cube surfaces as possible, but no two engraved surfaces may touch. And for his work, he is to be paid $10 for each surface he engraves. Now, under those instructions, how much will he be paid? I'm sorry, Doctor. I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Don't you want to try on it? <laughs> uh, remember, no two surfaces may touch. Ten dollars for each surface. Oh. Five seconds, please, sir. Want to try? Three. Three? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's two. Uh, Twenty dollars. Uh, only two surfaces can be engraved without touching another surface. But a box of Dr. IQ. Candy to that gentleman. Thanks for trying. And two tickets for next week's production of Chase Buffalo. Now Ken Powell in the right balcony. If you think about it, this is a great deal for Mars. Not only was there candy mentioned in the ads that were read on the show but it was also mentioned every time there's an incorrect answer, which is estimated to be between 70 and 75% of the time. Now, Mars manufactured the Dr. IQ candy bars in their Chicago plant clearly as a tie-in for the show, but they were only made for a short period of time in the early 1940s. For the remainder of the run where they sponsored the show, they advertised their most popular candies like Snickers and Milky Way. The last episode of Dr. IQ was broadcast on the ABC network on November 29th of 1950. Now, there were a couple of attempts to resurrect the show on radio, and it also ran on television for a short period of time, but they were unsuccessful. So here's a question for you. What was the purpose of Glassmaker's Soap? Now, if you're a collector of antique glass or glassware, you may be familiar with the term, but if you're not, hang out for a bit and I'll let you know what Glassmaker's Soap is at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. In other news, here are three stories that deal with love and marriage in one form or another. As many of you know, the first Ferris wheel was built by George Ferris for the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exhibition, and it really was an effort to out-Eiffel Gustav Eiffel you know, in his famed Paris Tower. Well, on July 12, 1904, Maud Nicholson became the first person to ever make one complete revolution while standing on top of one of its cars. Now, when you take into consideration that each car on the original Ferris wheel was gigantic, each one was designed to hold 40 people seated or 60 standing, this really wasn't quite as dangerous as it may initially sound. On October 9th of that same year, Estelle Clayton of Wayne County, Missouri, and Martin Good of New York City decided to have their wedding on top of one of the cars just as it was reaching the highest point along its circumference. Mr. Good was one of the assistant engineers involved in the construction of the wheel, during which he met Ms. Clayton, who was employed as a stenographer at the time. On the big day, the wedding party, and that consisted of the couple, a reverend, the bridesmaid, the best man, and six other people, they all climbed on top of one of the cars, and they were careful not to take a step backward and, of course, fall off. The photographer, R.R. Whiting, he was perched atop a car that was one ahead of them. Two complete loops were made. The first was so that Whiting could line up the perfect shot, and of course the second during which the ceremony took place. Everyone was amazingly calm during the entire event. A band down in the plaza in front of the wheel played the wedding march, while thousands witnessed the ceremony from the ground. 
Once everyone was back on terra firma, the couple drove off in a white automobile, a rarity for 1904. Our second story is dated September 25th of 1912, when it was announced that the Bavarian Railroad had placed a ban on kissing on its trains and railroad property. This rule was put in place after a couple boarded one of their trains after a strenuous bicycling tour. The wife was exhausted, so she laid her head on her husband's shoulder, and he placed his arm around her. Well, this made some of the other riders uncomfortable, and they summoned the conductor, claiming they had witnessed the couple kissing. Can you believe that kissing in public? What is this world coming to? Well, the husband denied that they had been kissing, but that didn't stop the railroad from banning kissing outright. And in our last story for today, it was reported that Stanley G. Peralta, a 19-year-old draftsman from Pasadena, California, he was so distraught over his 17-year-old wife Luella leaving him that he attempted suicide not once, but twice at 2.30 a.m. on January 31st of 1956. Now, the couple had been married back on February 10th of 1954 when Stanley was 17 and Luella was 16. Well, at the time of this incident, the couple had a 20-month-old son named Roland. As Peralta was driving eastbound on Colorado Street, which is now Colorado Boulevard, he opened the car door and he rolled out into the path of oncoming traffic. Of course, he was hoping to be struck and killed. Now, when the other car swerved and missed him, Peralta just stood up and he ran after his car, which was still coasting down the street, and he threw himself under the vehicle's rear wheel. The car stopped when it crashed into a storefront at 1706 East Colorado Street. Now, if you're curious, there's a Chick-fil-A sitting in that location today. When officers arrived on the scene, they found a despondent Peralta sitting in the back seat of his car. So he was taken to Huntington Memorial Hospital, where he was treated for cuts and bruises and then released. His wife Luella, who had met reporters at her mother's home at 126 North Meredith Avenue, she insisted that her husband's dual attempted suicide would have no bearing at all on her decision to leave him. So early in the podcast, I asked you what the purpose of glassmaker soap was. Did you know? Well, glassmaker's soap was basically manganese dioxide, the mineral pyrolusite, and it was added to glass mixtures to decolorize traces of iron. The resulting oxidation of the iron would create glass that was less green in color, but unfortunately slightly less transparent, and that's why you could only use a very small amount of the manganese dioxide. Now, it's thought to have been used in glassmaking since the 2nd century BC. That's incredible. And manganese dioxide was widely used up through the 1930s in clear pressed glass. Now, if you've ever seen antique bottles that have spent a lot of time exposed to sunlight, and I'm talking about many years or decades, the glass will turn to maybe a pink or a purple amethyst color. And that's because the energy of the sun naturally photooxidizes the manganese dioxide in the glass. But buyer beware. There are many dealers at antique shows, flea markets, and online that are selling antique bottles that have not been naturally irradiated. Basically, they find worthless old clear glass bottles, and they expose them to either gamma rays or electron beams, and that produces the amethyst color. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I hope that you found the story on Eunice and Charlie Johns interesting. 
It's one that kind of creeped me out when I first came across it, but as I researched it further, I thought it was worth telling. I've been thinking that for months. Anyway, I encourage you to go to my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and I'll post pictures of the couple there. I think you'll be shocked to see just how young Eunice was when she married Charlie. I am not kidding when I say she barely stood above his belly button. Well, after 30 years, my teaching career has finally come to a close. And not having my students in class at the end was not the way I wished to go, so I recorded a goodbye video for them. I included some science demonstrations that I never got to do this year, and that included setting my tie on fire. It's really worth seeing. So if you'd like to see the video, simply go to YouTube and search for My Last Day of Teaching. That's what I titled it, My Last Day of Teaching. And there's several that will pop up when you do the search, but my video is the one with my head between five bowling balls. And being a geologist, I called my channel The Falling Rock Zone. It just seemed appropriate. Just a reminder that my new book, The Flipside History, is scheduled for release next month. I was told last week that it's currently being printed, so it'd be really nice to have a finished, you know, printed copy in my hands. If you'd be interested in purchasing a copy, it's available for pre-order with both Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and I'm sure you can get it from your local bookseller. Now, supposedly there's an audio version also being recorded, but they didn't ask me to do the reading. Honestly, I have no clue when or if that will be done. Just a reminder, be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, at UselessInfoCast, and that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. You can also like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and I'm sure it'll pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.